Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and genocide that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. By the start of May 1945, Europe was in chaos. For almost six years, the continent had been ravaged by war between the Allies and the Axis powers. Now, Mussolini and Hitler were both dead, and World War II had come to an end. However, the violence and chaos were far from over, especially in Croatia. For four years, the ultra-nationalist Ustasha regime had lorded over the country in a reign of terror ethnically cleansing non-Croats in an attempt to turn the country into its own version of Nazi Germany. But with the Nazis defeated, the Ustasha were now on the run. They knew that if they stayed, they would face the wrath of the Soviet Red Army and the multi-ethnic Yugoslav partisans. And the partisans in particular were eager to dole out their revenge against the Ustasha. Hidden amongst the wave of civilian refugees was the leader of the Ustasha and the man who orchestrated the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, Ante Pavlich. Pavlich knew that if he ended up in partisan hands, his fate would be similar to Mussolini's. Death by firing squad and body displayed upside down for all to see. So Pavlich decided he needed to run. His plan was to go to the last place anyone would suspect of hiding a Nazi collaborator, Vatican City. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at lesser-known World War II dictators who are allied with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Last week, we began our look into Croatian nationalist Ante Pavlic. We discussed how he created the Ustasha terrorist organization, orchestrated the murder of King Alexander I of Yugoslavia, and took over Croatia with the backing of Hitler and Mussolini. This week, we'll explore how Pavlic immediately lost faith among Croatians by capitulating to the Italians, how he engineered a genocide in order to appease his Nazi masters, and how he fled Croatia at the end of World War II, escaping justice for his crimes against humanity. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In April 1941, 51-year-old lawyer, politician, and terrorist Ante Pavlic left Italy for Croatia after years of exile. He was ready to lead the newly proclaimed independent state of Croatia, or NDH. The new territory included modern-day Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and parts of Serbia and Slovenia. The bitter irony of Pavlic's independent state of Croatia was that it was not independent, nor a sovereign state, nor controlling lands that were historically considered to be Croatia. Rather, it was a bizarre Frankenstein monster stitched together with hatred, thanks to Pavlic's Ustasha terrorist organization. When Pavlic accepted leadership in the capital of Zagreb on April 15, 1941, he proclaimed, Ustasha, we have won. We won because we had faith. We won because we held out. We won because we fought. Ustasha. In fact, Ustasha won because the Germans and Italians had done all of the heavy lifting for them. It was Benito Mussolini who housed Pavlic for years while providing him with guns, uniforms, and cash. And it was Adolf Hitler who had toppled Yugoslavia and made an independent Croatia possible. These two masters, Mussolini and Hitler, would loom large in Croatia in the years to come. According to journalist Marcus Tanner, the first acts of the NDH made it clear that the new state was to be a carbon copy of Nazi Germany. There was no pretense at democratic government. The decision to transform Croatia along Nazi lines owed as much to practical considerations as to ideological ones. The Nazis' policies of overt racial terror dovetailed neatly with Pavlic's own plans to create a so-called pure Croatia. Under no circumstances did Pavlic believe that he was an independent ruler. Unlike Josef Tiso, who believed he could potentially separate Slovakia from Hitler, Pavlic knew right away that he was a puppet. And the truth was, Pavlic didn't care. If acting as de facto leader and transforming Croatia into a Nazi client state meant keeping him in power, Pavlic was more than willing to do so. At first, the majority of the Croatians were excited about their newly founded independence. And when Pavlic announced the new government would be filled exclusively with men from the Ustasha, Croatian nationalists clearly didn't mind. While Croatian nationalists knew they were under Nazi control, for now they saw Pavlic's government as an important step in the right direction. Unfortunately, it wasn't. As historian Robert B. McCormick put it, a deal had been made with the devil, and Croatia would pay mightily. That became clear quickly first through Pavlic's concessions to his old friend Mussolini. For a decade, 
Mussolini had financed Pavlich, now Il Duce wanted a return on his investment. When the Ustasha had first formed in 1930, it had promised to recreate Croatia's historical borders. But immediately upon the NDH's creation, Pavlich broke that promise. And in April and early May 1941, Pavlich bowed to pressure from Mussolini and gave historical Croatian land to Italy. The most important region that Pavlich ceded was the majority of Dalmatia, a strip of land along the eastern shore of the Adriatic Sea. In essence, it gave Mussolini another gateway into the Balkans for any potential invasions. News of the land exchange outraged many. Dalmatians especially had expected that Pavlich would, at the very least, defend their historic territory. Whatever initial enthusiasm there was for Pavlich began to evaporate. Quickly. When he boasted, we'll hold on, clear things up here, and then throw the Italians into the sea, few people believed him anymore. Their skepticism was more than warranted. Il Duce wasn't finished with Croatia yet. On top of the territorial humiliation, Mussolini forced Pavlic to name the Italian Duke of Spoleto as the new king of Croatia. And to add insult to injury, Pavlic was in Rome to watch the coronation. Desperate to save face during the trip, Pavlic arranged to meet Pope Pius XII. The dictator hoped that by meeting the Pope, he would shore up his legitimacy to rule over the pious Croatian population. Pius XII even gave Pavlic a crucifix as a gesture of goodwill. Unfortunately for Pius XII, meeting Pavlic caused a scandal for the church. Many wondered at the appropriateness of the Supreme Pontiff meeting with a known terrorist and convicted murderer. Especially considering the fact that he was still using terror and murder to shore up his power, liberally. Just 17 days after the independent state of Croatia was declared, the Ustasha executed at least 180 Serbs in the town of Gudovac in northeastern Croatia. This was the beginning of a campaign of mass murder, which, according to Robert McCormick, ultimately shocked even the Germans with its viciousness. It's a bit odd that some Germans would be startled by Pavlich's reign of terror. After all, the Ustasha had modeled their campaign after the Nazi regime, though they did add their own unique Balkan flavor. Racial tensions between Croats and Serbs went back to at least the 19th century and had been exacerbated by the policies of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. Hatred of Orthodox Serbs had been one of the foundational pillars of Pavlic and the Ustasha organization. Now the ultra-nationalist Ustasha wanted to punish the Serbs and eliminate what they viewed as an inferior race. But the Ustasha knew they couldn't just blatantly start murdering non-Croat civilians en masse. Instead, their early repression operated under the guise of law and order. All Orthodox Serb citizens were required to wear a blue armband with the letter P for Pravoslavats, meaning Orthodox. Further, the Cyrillic alphabet used for the Serbian language was prohibited. Only the Latin alphabet used by Croats was permitted. In addition, the NDH shut down Orthodox religious schools. 
In time, Serbs were barred access to Croatian businesses and public events, while their private property was confiscated and divided among the Ustasha leadership. But for Pavlic, expropriating non-Croats' land and barring them from civilian life wasn't enough. Throughout April 1941, while being forced to give up land to the Italians, Pavlic enacted legislation which left non-Croats legally unprotected. The first was the law concerning nationality. The decree stated that a citizen is a national of Aryan origin who has proven by his conduct that he did not engage in activities against the liberation efforts of the Croatian people and who is ready and willing to serve faithfully the Croatian nation and the independent state of Croatia. Thus, every Serb in the country, as well as every Jew, Roma, and even Croatians who are on the Ustasha's bad side were stripped of their citizenship. Next came the Law on the Protection of the People and the State. This act declared that anyone who endangered the NDH or the Ustasha in any way shall be considered guilty of high treason, even if his act was but a mere attempt. The punishment for violating this intentionally vague law was, of course, death. Conveniently for the regime, the law could be enforced retroactively. Anyone who had been suspected of opposing the Ustasha before they took power could be legally arrested and executed. According to Robert McCormick, in practical terms, this law's oppressive power granted the Ustasha the right to murder whomever they pleased. Years earlier, Pavlic shaped the Ustasha into a terrorist organization which exalted violence and stoked the hatred of ethnic foes. Now, he was indoctrinating Croats to view non-Croats as not only the enemy, but as impure. Of course, there was a reason for this propaganda. Pavlic had shaped his Ustasha into rabid attack dogs with a thirst for blood. He knew that each passing day, they'd start pulling harder on the leash of law and order. So he had to set up somewhere to set them loose, or rather, a group to let them loose on. Then, all that was left was to wait for the okay from his master, Adolf Hitler. Coming up, Pavlic and the Ustasha orchestrated genocide in Croatia. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala, and we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By the middle of 1941... 51-year-old Ante Pavlich was the master of Croatia, but Mussolini and Hitler were the masters of Pavlich. Eager to stay in their good graces, Pavlich was willing to go to any lengths to make them happy. To placate Mussolini, Pavlich gave up historically Croatian lands to the Italians. And to appease Hitler, not to mention his own bloodthirsty followers, Pavlich persecuted Croatia's ethnic minorities. Within the first few months of his reign, Pavlich had stripped all non-Croats of their citizenship and prohibited them from various aspects of society. It was only a matter of time before the persecution turned to outright murder. Pavlich and Hitler met for the first time on June 6, 1941. This meeting wasn't a summit to exchange pleasantries. Rather, Hitler was distressed by the possibility of the Serbs undermining Pavlich's regime and disrupting the flow of Croatia's natural resources to Germany. While eventually, some Germans would be alarmed by Pavlich's violence, for now, Hitler was calling for it. Pavlich was more than willing to respond in the affirmative. He promised that Hitler had nothing to worry about. The Ustasha was already dealing firmly with the country's Serb and Jewish populations. Hitler was pleased, and then encouraged Pavlich to force the Serbs out of Croatia entirely. In essence, Hitler gave Pavlich the green light to do whatever was necessary to eliminate the alleged Serb threat. That's exactly what Pavlich did. The Ustasha campaign of terror lasted the entirety of Pavlich's reign and operated within the borders of Croatia. And while the regime would target Jews, Roma, and political dissidents, the Ustasha focused heavily on the Serbs. In fact, the Minister of Education, Mile Budak, allegedly described the Ustasha policy toward the Serbs as, quote, convert a third, expel a third, and kill a third. As such, during Pavlich's reign, Serbs were forcibly exiled, and many of those who remained were placed into concentration camps in Croatia. The most notorious of the NDH's 26 concentration camps was Jasenovac, which grew into the third largest concentration camp in Europe. Thousands of men, women, and children were sent to Jasenovac. Upon arriving at a camp, prisoners were separated between those who possessed useful skills or could perform manual labor and those deemed worthless. The latter were executed immediately. But even those who survived this initial screening process didn't last much longer. Prisoners were underfed and kept in filthy conditions with little or no protection from the elements. And the Eustacea guards could and did abuse them in any manner they saw fit. Prisoners who didn't collapse from overwork or succumb to disease were killed anyway. K-12 
camp rules stipulated that all prisoners had to be put to death after a period of no more than three months. During the executions, more often than not, victims were simply shot. However, axes, knives, swords, hammers, whips, and strangulation were all used to murder Yazinovats' prisoners, in addition to an even more insidious method, simply throwing prisoners into a deep pit called the Dove's Nest, since only birds could escape it. The brutality wasn't confined to the camps, however. In many cases, the Ustasha didn't even bother arresting or transporting the people to the camps. Often, they simply descended into a village, hacked women and children with axes and swords, or locked villagers into barns and set them on fire. By the time the Ustasha left, the village was no longer on the map. Coupled with the executions was the obliteration of Serb culture, especially the Serbs' Orthodox Christianity. The bodies of Orthodox priests were frequently mutilated, while Orthodox churches, some dating from the 13th and 14th centuries, were destroyed. And while Orthodox churches were the largest targets, the Ustasha also went through various villages and cities and destroyed countless Serbian books and works of art. Pavlic wanted to annihilate Serbian identity and turn them into nothing more than a vaguely remembered footnote in the annals of history. Hand in hand with this cultural destruction was a policy of forced religious conversion. By 1942, archival records show that close to 100,000 Serbs were converted to Catholicism. In all likelihood, that number is even greater. Still, only illiterate peasants were given the option of conversion. Anyone with an education was considered too dangerous for conversion and instead subjected to exile or execution. News of the forced conversions naturally made their way to the Vatican. And while Pope Pius XII did not release a statement regarding Ustasha violence, some church officials spoke out against the regime and forbade absolution to any who took part in the killings. Other church officials, however, actively participated in the atrocities, some with regret, others without remorse. The Archbishop of Zagreb, Aloysia Stepinac, was initially one of the regime's most vocal supporters. According to Marcus Tanner, within days of the establishment of the NDH, the Archbishop lent his reputation to the Ustasha regime without hesitation and quickly gave Pavlic his public blessing. That is, until the Ustasha's brutality started to shock Stepinac. After this change of heart, Stepinac fell short of publicly denouncing the regime, but he did privately help save targets from becoming more Ustasha victims. Many church officials failed to have a change of heart at all. The Archbishop of Sarajevo, Ivan Sharic, was so enraptured by Pavlic that he wrote poems about the dictator and was said to have praised total genocide. This genocide, of course, would include the Jews as well as the Serbs. Attacks on Croatia's Jewish population were motivated by crude anti-Semitism and an ultra-nationalist desire to purify the nation. But they also conveniently curried favor with Hitler. 
Pavelich pursued a policy of intimidation and violence against the NDH's Jewish population as early as May 1941. Much like the Serbs, Jews saw their property confiscated and their citizenship stripped from them. Nearly every synagogue in the country was destroyed. Jews, too, had to wear a badge. In this case, a yellow armband with the letter Z for Zhidov, or Jew. And then, when the time came to arrest the Serbs, force them into concentration camps and execute them, the Ustasha made sure to include the Jews as well. One of the first targets was the community of some 10,000 Jews in the city of Sarajevo, sometimes called the Jerusalem of the Balkans. When Sarajevo was finished, the Ustasha moved on to the rest of the country. In 1941, there were about 23,000 Jews in Croatia and 14,000 in Croatian-occupied Bosnia. According to Marcus Tanner, those who were able to survive were hidden by Bosnian Muslims or escaped to the Italian zone of Dalmatia, or fled to the forests where they joined the communist rebels. Unfortunately, most did not make it. Under Pavlich, more than 80% of the Jewish population in Croatia and Bosnia was killed. The exact number of deaths caused by the Ustasha regime is difficult, probably impossible, to determine for certain. Tanner has estimated that, quote, the total number of casualties in Yugoslavia during the war was 947,000, of whom 487,000 were Serbs, 207,000 Croats, 86,000 Muslims, and 60,000 Jews. Of these, about 215,000 died in concentration camps. This mass ethnic cleansing wasn't Pavlich's only effort to follow Hitler's lead. On December 11, 1941, Germany declared war on the United States. Four days later, Pavlich did the same. Ironically, this would lead to Pavlich's doom. Declaring war against the United States did two things. First, it inspired several underground anti-Pavlich resistance movements to come into the light. And second, it invited the U.S. to become interested in those movements. The strongest of them was the communist-aligned Yugoslav partisans. The partisans grew out of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia which predated the formation of the NDH. However, once the Ustasha came to power, the partisans were forced underground. And since many Croatians weren't enamored with the partisans' communist rhetoric, the resistance had trouble taking off. However, the leader of the partisans, Josip Broz, or Tito, began to tone down the communist message, instead focusing on patriotism. Meanwhile, the Ustasha's reign of terror intensified. And finally, the movement grew. In fact, the partisans became so powerful so quickly that by the spring of 1942, Pavlich's authority barely extended past the capital of Zagreb. Less than a year into Pavlich's reign, Croatia had devolved into anarchy. When the Ustasha wasn't rounding up Serbs, Jews, Roma, or dissidents and sending them to their deaths, they were stuck in a savage war against the Allied-backed partisans. Steadily, Pavlich was losing control. And it was making Pavlich's overlord, Adolf Hitler, angry. On September 22, 1942, 
Pavlich met with Hitler in Vinnytsia, Ukraine. According to Robert McCormick, the Fuhrer was furious over the constant unrest in Croatia and demanded that something be done so he could remove most of his troops there and dispatch them to the Eastern Front. Besides a drain on manpower, the chaos prevented Croatia's natural resources from being exploited by the Nazis. In effect, Hitler's ally in Croatia was doing more harm than good. Undoubtedly, Hitler failed to appreciate that the reason why Croatia had become an ulcer was because Pavlich had done everything he could to emulate the Fuhrer. Some German military officers at the meeting at least recognized that Pavlich's regime was the source of Croatia's problems and suggested that Pavlich be removed from power. Pavlich shot back that partisan sabotage was actually declining and that the NDH had always been a faithful ally. This was patently false. But it's not clear whether Pavlich was trying to deceive Hitler or himself. Regardless, for now it worked. Hitler agreed to commit more German resources to wiping out the partisans, perhaps hoping that one last push would solve the Croatia problem and leave his men free to get back to fighting the Soviets. That's not what happened. Troops did not swiftly free up to go fight the Soviets, and the Balkan ulcers started having a serious effect on the Reich's war machine. In November 1942, the Soviet Red Army launched Operation Uranus, which led to the defeat of German troops at Stalingrad in February 1943. This months-long battle is widely considered to be the turning point in the war. The Croatian infantry regiment present at Stalingrad was virtually annihilated. And when word of the defeat reached Croatia, morale among the people was at an all-time low. Most Croatians could see that neither the Nazis nor perhaps the Ustasha were long for this world. The only person who still seemed optimistic about the Axis somehow winning the war was Ante Pavlich. Throughout 1943, Pavlich remained defiant, promising that he would die defending Zagreb. Little did Pavlich realize that within two years, that promise would be put to the test or that when facing the Red Army's cannons, he would fail miserably. Coming up, the independent state of Croatia collapses and Pavlic disappears to South America. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Now back to the story. 
The German defeat at Stalingrad in February 1943 was the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany and Ante Pavlich. Once news of the disaster reached the independent state of Croatia, almost everyone was certain that Pavlich's days were numbered. Even though Pavlich himself remained optimistic that the Nazis could win, most Croatians were convinced that it was only a matter of time before the advancing Soviet Red Army would help the partisans. The death of the Ustasha state seemed all but inevitable. Throughout 1943 and 1944, Pavlich's authority continued to dwindle at a rapid pace. With the Nazis occupied by the Eastern Front, and eventually the Western Front, Resources were diverted away from Croatia, making it impossible for Pavlich to rely on his Nazi overlords' help. Meanwhile, the Nazis were losing ground quickly, especially on the Eastern Front. In the fall of 1944, the Red Army and Tito's partisans launched an offensive into Serbia. After a month of fierce fighting, they liberated Belgrade on October 20th. Soviet and partisan tanks now pointed towards Zagreb. With the wolves at the door, Pavlich remained defiant, on the surface. He declared at a cabinet meeting that he would defend Zagreb to the death. But in truth, he was already considering how to escape Croatia and partisan vengeance. After two years prolonging the inevitable, the last dominoes fell quickly at the end of spring 1945. On April 28th, Mussolini was executed by Italian partisans. Two days later, Hitler committed suicide. A few days after Hitler's death, Pavlich learned that Germany was going to surrender. Meanwhile, he knew the Ustasha was no match against the partisans and the Red Army. So he decided it was time. He had to run. How exactly Pavlich escaped Croatia in the final days of World War II is not entirely clear. However, it appears that he and a handful of men made their way to the Austrian town of Klagenfurt sometime in early May. The timing couldn't have been better. On May 8th, the partisans entered Zagreb and took control. The independent state of Croatia, after four ruthless years, was no more. As Tito and the partisans took over Croatia and Yugoslavia as a whole, Ante Pavlich disappeared, becoming one of thousands of refugees fleeing north. His exact whereabouts during this period were, and to this day remain, a mystery. To the immense frustration of the partisans, who were on the hunt for Pavlich's head. The search was hampered by the quickly deteriorating relationship between Yugoslavia and the West, Tito was in the midst of transforming Yugoslavia into a communist state, while also supporting the communist side in the ongoing Greek Civil War. This soured relationships with the West, particularly the United States. As such, the Allies were in no hurry to satisfy Tito's request to hunt down and extradite any Ustasha war criminals. Then, as Tito's government embarked on some human rights violations of its own, Yugoslav calls for justice fell on increasingly deaf ears. Thus, for a time, Pavlich's whereabouts remained unknown. Many historians believe that in April 1946, he snuck into Italy. 
One document even suggests that he lived in a Vatican City stable and was in contact with Giovanni Montini. At the time, Montini was the Vatican Secretary of State. Eventually, he would become Pope Paul VI. If Pavlich was, in fact, being sheltered at the Vatican, he stayed there for over two years and was forced to flee thanks to the Americans. Throughout 1947, the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps, or CIC, finally launched an investigation into Pavlich's whereabouts and became convinced that he was at the Vatican. It's unclear why exactly the CIC decided to start searching for Pavlich. They may have intended to bring him to justice, or they may have planned to use him as a tool to destabilize communist Yugoslavia. Either way, the CIC issued an order for Pavlich's arrest on July 7, 1947. Perhaps that would have been the end of his life in hiding. Except a week later, the arrest order was nullified by the investigator's superiors. According to Robert McCormick, it was not unusual for one branch of the American government to be protecting war criminals while other American authorities were searching for them. Which gave Pavlich the chance to stay on the run and in the fall of 1948, set sail from Naples. From there, on November 6th, he landed in Argentina where he became one of many fascist war criminals sheltered by Argentine President Juan Perón. Finally safe in Argentina, 59-year-old Pavlich began considering how he could retake power in Croatia. With the help of other Ustasha members who made their way to Argentina, Pavlich began to secretly rebuild his terrorist organization using a construction company as cover. Ironically, the Ustasha organization received help from some Croatians and Ustasha sympathizers in Europe. Those who opposed Tito's communist government turned to the Ustasha as an alternative, almost as if they had blocked out memories of life under the Pavlic regime. Ostensibly inspired by this sudden wave of pro-Ustasha sentiment, Pavlic founded the Croatian Liberation Movement, and the Croatian Franciscan Fathers published various articles that were critical of the Tito regime. Still, Pavlic's goal of revitalizing the Ustasha remained an uphill battle. A serious blow came in September 1955 when a coup in Argentina forced Perón out of power. With Perón gone, press censorship relaxed. Soon, newspapers began demanding that Pavlich be expelled from the country. For whatever reason, the new Argentinian government ignored these calls. But Pavlich had more dangerous enemies than the Argentine press. On April 10, 1957, after returning from a party celebrating the anniversary of the founding of the independent state of Croatia, an assassin shot Pavlich. Twice. The assassin escaped into the night, and their identity has not been conclusively proven. But the most likely candidate is a Montenegrin Serb and former partisan soldier named Blagoje Jovovic. Jovovic took credit for the attempt and insisted he was acting alone, not as a state agent. Jovovic claimed, I want to kill the greatest butcher of the Serbs. I want to avenge Serbian victims, and I'm going to do it because I'm a Serb. I do it for the nation. 
It seemed that perhaps Jovovich would get what he wanted. Pavlich was taken to the hospital with bullets in the chest and spine. But then, he was released the very next day. The attack failed to end Pavlich's life. However, it did lead to louder calls for the Argentine government to banish him. And finally, on April 26, 1957, the government issued a warrant for Pavlich's arrest. Two days later, Pavlich once again disappeared, possibly with the help of the very government that ordered his arrest. As Argentina had no extradition arrangement with Yugoslavia, it may have seemed easiest to force him into exile. Still, despite that lucky break, Pavlich was hounded by assassins and soon left South America altogether. In 1958, he managed to escape into Spain, then under control of fascist dictator Francisco Franco. But by now, Pavlich was old, tired, and sick. He gave up on his effort to return to Croatia, and he settled into Madrid. Then, on December 29, 1959, 70-year-old Ante Pavlich died from complications caused by the assassination attempt. Jovovich was belatedly successful. As Pavlich breathed his last, he clutched the crucifix given to him by Pope Pius XII during his 1941 visit to the Vatican. Even after Pavlich's death, the Ustasha movement lived on in a mutated but no less violent form. In essence, it returned to its terrorist roots, bombing airplanes, assassinating ambassadors, and killing civilians throughout the 1960s and 1970s. With the collapse of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s, the country succumbed to civil war. Pavlich and the Ustasha once again became symbols of Croatian independence. According to Robert McCormick, the memory of Ustasha atrocities galvanized some Serbs to kill Croatians and convinced some Croatians to revive the policies of 1941. Both sides drew inspiration from Pavlich's NDH, either to celebrate it or castigate it. Revenge crept into all quarters of the former Yugoslavia. Ultimately, an independent Croatian state emerged in 1992, encouraging Ustasha supporters to return from exile. To this day, Croatian ultranationalists continue to praise Pavlich and the Ustasha and downplay the atrocities they carried out. Thankfully, though, such voices remain a small minority in modern Croatia. While some may see him as a symbol for Croat nationalism, the rest refuse to forget the fact that hundreds of thousands, Serbs, Jews, Roma, and political dissidents, died during his reign. Ironically, the policies of the ultranationalists were counterproductive. In trying to create a new, greater Croatia, the Ustasha virtually destroyed the country. Ante Pavlic's reign provides perhaps only one important lesson, that peace and moderation are better for the nation than war and extremism. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we continue our look into lesser-known Nazi collaborators with Jan Antonescu of Romania. 
For more information on Ante Pavlic, amongst the many sources we used, we found Croatia under Ante Pavlic, America, the Ustasha, and Croatian Genocide by Robert B. McCormick particularly helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination... Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.